Welcome back to Plans Are... Nope. <laughs> nope. No, not that one. <laughs> That's my other podcast. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back to True, True Crime. Crime Tried. Let me try this again. <laughs> Welcome back to True Crime Trine, the podcast where three buddies get together, chat about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit we can fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. Do the planets not align anymore? The planets yeah. sometimes align. Did I miss that? I am. It's fine. That used to be the first line, but it hasn't been for like a couple now, I think. Oh, yeah. shit. You gotta switch it Cut out. It. It's okay. Cut it. Keep it. Okay. Cut it. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I love the planets align part. I'll have to remember next time. This is episode 21. Woo! I'll remember the proper introduction on episode 22. If these were years, this podcast would be legally (gasps) able to drink as much as we've been drinking. (laughs) And I don't have any drink tonight. Oh. I'll be the DD. I'm DDing as well because of my migraine, so. This is a very sober 21 birthday. Yeah. Lame. Okay, I'll catch up for you, too. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> it's all on you. This is going to be a fun astrology section, you guys. <laughs> Woo! get into our main deal of the day do we have any housekeeping i just wanted to give a quick shout out to whoever is listening in algeria we appreciate you and thank you so much for listening we'd love to hear from you you can always contact us at truecrimetrine at gmail.com but thank you so much for your listenership i also have one throwback to the uh, story that I gave last week about the werewolf of Bedburg. There is apparently a metal band called Macabre on their album Murder Metal. They have a song about the werewolf of Bedburg. Wow. So if you don't feel like listening to me talk for 40 minutes, this one's about five minutes long and he'll scream at you about it. Okay. That sounds fun. It's pretty fun. They, he, they also did a Dorothea Puente one. Interesting. But they spelled Dorothea's name wrong, and they said her son helped her a lot, which is not true. Okay. Creative license in the lyrics, I guess. Yeah, this whole album is, like, just different serial killers, but... Oh. I wanted to throw that out there, because I did listen to it. It's exactly what you would expect a metal band singing about Werewolf of Bedburg from 2003 to sound like. Are there any howls? I don't remember, actually. That would be really cool if they, like, sampled a wolf howl in the background. Not in a way that was, like, memorable, I guess. Okay. Anywho, if you have five minutes and six seconds, listen to that song. Do it. Okay. I think we're good, then. Should we jump into our story? Yes. Meredith? Hannah kicked us off into spooky season last week with some werewolfery. Yay! So, I thought I would keep the trend going with something creepy. Yay! And maybe even a little paranormal. Love it, love it, love it. Are you ready, ghouls? Yes. 
<laughs> Always. Schools. This is our uh, this is our time to shine. We're going to start off with a little bit of history and a little bit of geography. So we are headed to Iowa, otherwise known as the Hawkeye State. Sure, sure. Iowa was admitted into the Union as the 29th state on December 28th of 1846. It is the only state that has two parallel rivers defining its borders. So the Mississippi River, which Hannah talked about (laughs) in her Minnesota episode, is on the east. And then the Missouri River and its tributary, the Big Sioux, is on the west. And for Sarah, the state flower of Iowa is the Wild Prairie Rose. Okay. Aw. Man, I've really fallen behind. (laughs) You don't have to do it every time. No, just whenever... Inspiration strikes. Yeah. All right, I'm going to struggle with this because I always get Iowa and Ohio confused, so I'll try. Okay, sounds good. So we're going to head to the southwest portion of Iowa to Montgomery County to visit a very small town of Villisca. (gasps) I know what you're going to do, and I'm so excited. (laughs) So as we learned in episode eight, the Connie Quedance story, A small town has less than 25,000 people, and Villisca, as of 2010, had a population of 1,252 and a land area of only 1.9 square miles. Huh? Wow. (laughs) Okay. So it definitely qualifies as a small town. However, (laughs) in 1910, the population was actually a little bit larger at 2,039 residents. Whoa. Still a small town. Yeah, but, like, where'd they all go? West. So the story that I have for you today is the unsolved and quite bizarre case of the Velisca Axe Murders. We are going to take you back in Yay! time to 1912. I love going back in time. To what year? To 1912. Okay. I'm going to just go through the list of the victims. It is sad. I know I said I wasn't going to do child murders again, but there's some children in here. The victims were Josiah Joe Moore, and he was 43. There was Sarah Montgomery Moore, 39. Herman Moore, 11. Catherine Moore, 10. Boyd Moore, 7. Paul Moore, 5. Lena Stillinger, 12. And Ina Stillinger, 8. That's a lot. On Sunday, June 9th of 1912, Joe and Sarah Moore took their four children and the two Stillinger girls to a children's church program at the local Presbyterian church. Sarah was the co-director for the event, and the evening was filled with recitations and speeches from the children of the congregation Sunday school. The night ended around 9.30 p.m. after a social mingling, And then the Moore family and the Stillinger girls walked the three blocks back to the Moore residence. On Monday, June 10th, at about 7.30 in the morning, the Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, noticed that the Moore house seemed eerily quiet. And again, these guys have four kids and they've got two extra kids staying the night. So one would assume that they would be, you know, up and bustling. Especially on a Monday. Mm Mm-hmm. Gotta get to work. Yep. Mary phoned Joe's brother Ross to tell him of her concerns, and as a small side note, I know Googling wasn't a thing back then, but I was curious about the telephone service, 
So I took a minor detour and I learned that Alexander Graham Bell won the first U.S. patent for the telephone in 1876. He began uh, research in 1874 and found financial backers to assist him with his business plan and eventually bringing the telephone to, to market. During 1877 to 1878, the first telephone line was constructed and the first switchboard was created. And by 1881, upwards of 49,000 telephones were in use. And by 1910, 5.8 million telephones were operational in Bell's telephone system. Whoa! So, yes, indeed, they had telephones. Do they have just <laughs> operators or do you, how do they get through? I didn't delve that far into it i think you still had to like pick it up and get an operator and then the operator would connect you okay but i do have a picture of one of the older telephones that we can add to the website it's pretty pretty cool um so back to the story mary telephone ross who was joe's brother and the local pharmacist and ross arrived at the moore home around 8 a.m to investigate mary's concerns As he entered the house to look around, he discovered two covered figures in the downstairs bedroom and bloodstains on the bed. Oh. Fearing the worst, Ross exited the home and telephoned his brother's hardware store, asking the employee, Ed Sally, to find Velisca's marshal, whose name was Henry, but he went by Hank Horton. Hank Horton sounds like a cartoon character <laughs> doesn't it and then you just see him like with his marshal badge i don't know <laughs> like a gun belt on mm-hmm. marshall horton arrived at the moore home around 8 30 a.m and he brought with him dr j clark cooper dr edward ho and wesley ewing who was the minister of the presbyterian church that the moors had been at the night before as hank went through the home he found that All of the occupants had been murdered. He found a partially cleaned axe against the wall in the downstairs bedroom where the Stillinger girls were found. And to make it just a bit more odd, near the axe was a four-pound slab of bacon. Huh? Wasn't a bear? Bacon made me do it. No one knows. (laughs) Police also found two cigarette butts in the attic, a plate of food, and a bowl of bloody water in the kitchen. They made himself at home. Kind of, yeah. And they also found garments that had been placed over mirrors and glass doors in the residence. That's the creepiest. And then I also read that all of the victims also had their faces covered with garments of some sort. Huh. It's just so like there's, I don't know what it is exactly, but like when you can't look at yourself in a mirror, like you can't see a reflection of yourself, mm-hmm. you're not doing well. No. Mm-mm. And, like, covering faces post-mortem, too, helps, I mean, some killers process or, like, think of it as, like, not, like, right, Hannah, you were talking about how when you went through and you actually looked at, like, cadavers for um, school, the face and the hands were, like, some of the last things to be presented. Yeah, it just depersonalizes it, too, for the killer. Yeah. They're not a part, like, it's just... It's not a human, it's just a It's like a slab of bacon. It's slab, yeah, With a pillowcase. The county coroner, L.A. Lindquist, and a third doctor, F.S. Williams. There's more doctors than I thought this small town would have. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) They also responded to the Moore home. Dr. Williams exited the home and told the growing crowd of onlookers, quote, 
Don't go in there, boys. You will regret it until the last day of your life. End quote. Also, well, don't go, go in, in there. It's a crime scene. <laughs> they didn't exactly. worry about that then. No, they really didn't. I mean, so I'd be with you, Sarah. I'd be like, well, now I want to. <laughs> now I'm curious. <laughs> I already wanted, and now I really want to. Well, you would be in line with the town of Villisca because around 100 curious neighbors and townsfolk went through the Moore home, scattering fingerprints, and in one case, even removing a fragment of Joe Moore's skull for a keepsake. No! I oh uh, man! Did they really do fingerprints back then? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like those, like really, really old timey. Oh god, what, I don't even remember I guess where they are. All you would say is like, oh, these are fingerprints, but there wasn't a database or anything to like compare them with. No, Avis had not been created yet. <laughs> these are the one hundred friends I would have in Alaska. <laughs> More friends than I have now. Yeah. So basically, these curious neighbors and onlookers destroyed any chance of obtaining real evidence from the crime scene. The crime scene was just destroyed. Was the bacon taken? No, it didn't say that the bacon was taken. Just the The piece of fragment of of Joe's skull. Priorities. So disturbing in so many ways. Did he take it off the skull, or was it just like, unless it like sitting splattered there? out? He's like, oh, this looks cool. These were axe murders uh, with the blunt end of the axe, so oh, I'm yeah. sure there were some fragments. But I've always imagined axe murders with the sharp end. But right? I've read a lot about blunt end axe murders. I guess it's mm-hmm. bigger surface area. Yeah, it is. But all eight victims had been bludgeoned to death with the axe while sleeping in their beds. In all of the rooms, there were also gouge marks discovered, and those were thought to be made from the upswing of the axe. And it was said that the older Stillinger child, Lena, awoke during the attack because she was laid crossways on the bed and had defensive wounds on her arm. I'm surprised not anyone else woke up. How many people were in that house? Like eight? Eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think uh, axe murder is quiet. No, you wouldn't think so. But we don't know how sound sound sleepers they were, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. The Moors, the sleepiest family you'll ever meet. I doubt I would wake up. I mean, I have slept through uh, fire alarms and stuff, so I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Funeral services for the Moore family and the Stillinger girls were held in Villisca's town square, and thousands of people attended the service. National Guardsmen had to block the street to allow the hearse to get to the local firehouse where the eight victims were located. Their caskets were not displayed during the services, but were later moved by wagons to the Velisca Cemetery where they were laid to rest. I will say I think they had already been displayed enough. Yeah. Yeah. As I said in the beginning, this case remains unsolved, and the town of Villisca is haunted by this mystery, but there were a few suspects. Yay! So, suspect one was Frank Jones, who was a local businessman, a state senator, and a prominent member of Villisca's Methodist Church. Oh, Methodist versus Presbyterian. We've been doing Catholics versus... Other people, but now we're getting into the nitty gritty Methodist <laughs> mm-hmm. versus Presbyterian 
bullshit. Joe had worked for Frank for seven years before leaving in 1907 because of working conditions. It was mentioned that Frank expected Joe to work seven days a week, like 11 hours a day. So oh, it's like corporate America now. <laughs> Joe decided that he was going to start his own business and he left and he took with him their large John Deere account and then he started his own business. By took, did he steal it? No, because he was- Did John Deere like him better? Probably. I mean, if you figure like even sales staff today, like if you are the point of contact for that customer, they might not want to deal with somebody else. They might just say- well, wherever you go, I'm, we'll go too. So it sounds like mm. that's kind of what happened. There were also rumors that Joe had an affair with Frank's son's wife. I was wondering where this was going to stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Frank's son's wife. Wow, Joe. Yeah. Pay so, attention to your own wife and all your kids. Especially with the amount of children you yeah. have. <laughs> and your new business. When do you have the time? I know. But needless to say, Joe and Frank were not on good terms, and it was also suggested that they would even cross the street to avoid each other. All right. Wow. Well, that seems less antagonistic, though. Yeah. There were also rumors swirling around Villisca, and a divide was created between the Presbyterians and the Methodists. Sorry, I just like, ah, oh, man, religion. I know. While Frank's guilt was unproven, many of the local Presbyterian congregation believed that Jones was responsible. And on another side note, I am not the most religious person on the planet, and I did have to look up the difference between the two churches. I was so. like, which one sings? Okay, I, don't I just I just was <laughs> looking it up right now because I was like, what is the difference I between them? I was literally <laughs> about to do that. The main difference between Methodist and Presbyterian beliefs are that Methodists reject the Calvinist belief of predestination, whereas Presbyterians settle for it. And then the Methodist is built on ancient governing order of the bishops, and the Presbyterian have a distinctive style of leadership by elders. I think I'm a Methodist if I had to choose. Okay. I think I'm still neither. I mean, well, if you had to choose. Predestination, I think, is fucking stupid. Because then what's the point of anything? What's the point of trying? Yeah, at all. They're pretty supposed to be. Yeah. All right. Well, now I'm on Fred's side, but he might be a murderer. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) In 1916, an agent of the Burns Detective Agency named John Wilkerson alleged that Jones had hired a murderer by the name of William Mansfield to commit the murders. Mansfield was suspected of killing his wife, child, and in-laws in Blue Island, Illinois in 1914. Wilkerson's campaign against Jones essentially ended Jones's political career. So he knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. A grand jury was convened to review the alleged evidence against Jones and Mansfield, but neither man were ever charged. Hmm. I mean, what is the evidence? Yeah. Maybe people walked through that one, too. How could you charge anybody with this? There seems like there's no, like, usable evidence, unless a fingerprint on the axe, maybe. No, and it didn't talk about any of that, so... um, And again, this is an unsolved case, so... Ha! We shouldn't be surprised! (laughs) Do they, I mean, do they know where the axe was from? Was it from their household or? It did say that it was likely from their shed. Oh, but they didn't actually go to their shed and see if there was an axe missing. It didn't say, no. <laughs> Come on, 1912 detectives. Do any of you own an axe? 
I do. I have an axe and I have two hatchets. Well, you should be careful. Me? <laughs> just in they case. They should be careful. I know how to use one. <laughs> just lock them up, though, at night while you're sleeping. <laughs> I mean, the, the garage is definitely locked. Okay, that's good. So suspect number two was a gentleman by the name of Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. Say that five times. Don't fast. love it. No, I've already forgotten it. <laughs> so we're just going to go with Reverend Kelly on this. But he was a traveling reverend who immigrated from England with his wife in 1904. And Reverend Kelly served the Methodist Church from 1904 to 1912, preaching in North Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Nebraska. And in the spring of 1912, he enrolled in the Presbyterian Seminary. You can just switch. Op- he did. <laughs> he indicated, quote, you can starve working for the Methodists, end quote. Oh, weird. I would have thought they would try to make their reverence happy for God. Okay. And on another side note, there are some discrepancies in information regarding Reverend Kelly and kind of the whole timeline for him of his arrival and departure from Villisca. So I've gathered what I could and and I'll put this forth. So if anyone has conflicting information, please share. But this is what I found. Reverend Kelly arrived in Villisca on the morning of June 9th to attend the children's service at the local Presbyterian church where the Moore family and the Stillinger girls were. He left Villisca at 5 a.m. on Monday morning aboard the westbound number 5 train. It was alleged that he spoke to other passengers about eight dead souls in Villisca that had been butchered in their beds, even though the bodies were not discovered until later that morning. Hmm. There is a bit of conspiracy around Reverend Kelly, and some thought that Frank Jones may have also been attempting to frame him. There was some information that suggested that Reverend Kelly may have suffered from some mental illness, and it was also said that two weeks after the murders, Reverend Kelly returned to Villisca to tour the Moore home with investigators and the minister of the Presbyterian Church. Why? Like they called him back or he came back on his own? He came back on his own. Okay, dude, you're being real sus. It's weird, right? Yeah. A grand jury indicted Reverend Kelly for Lena Stillinger's murder, but none of the others. And he spent the summer of 1917 being interrogated by police. On August 1st of 1917, Reverend Kelly confessed to Lena's murder saying God had whispered to him, quote, suffer the children to come unto me, end quote. A literalist. Mm-hmm. What about the parents? Oh, he's only charged with Lena, Lena's, though. Mm-hmm. So was he predestined to have that message? He's a, pre- he's a Presbyterian now. Yeah, maybe. Mm. He did recant his confession at trial and was ultimately acquitted in November of 1917. Yeah, there's just, like, not any evidence right i mean there's nothing to go on like there's like nothing here so but if you confess to one how can you not say that you were there for the rest of them too but he recanted he did recant and it had i think more to do with his mental his supposed mental illness that and again he was interrogated all summer so it might have been one of those like i will tell you what you want to hear at least just leave me alone yeah yeah 
Not necessarily another suspect, but another theory emerged because between 1911 and 1912, there was a series of axe murders in Rainier, Washington, Colorado Springs, Colorado, Ellsworth and Paola, I don't know if I pronounced that right, Kansas, Monmouth, Illinois, and I don't know if I pronounced that one right either, and Columbia, Missouri. It was thought that these, in addition to the Villisca axe murders could be the work of a transient serial killer as the train tracks were near all of these crime scenes and there were also some similarities to the crimes. The Columbia, Missouri case was linked to Henry Lee Moore. No relation to the Moore family. (laughs) Mm -mm. Not an uncle. He was a forger, a murderer, and a suspected serial killer who was convicted of killing his mother and grandmother with an axe in their home. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. God, what a disappointment to birth that asshole. It was alleged by a Justice Department agent named W.M. McClary that Moore was responsible for a string of unsolved axe murders in several states, including the Villisca axe murders. There are so many different rabbit holes of information on this case, on the suspects, and on the serial killer theory. There is also a ton of pop culture surrounding this case, including, but definitely not limited to, a 2004 documentary called Villisca, Living with a Mystery by Kelly and Tammy Rundle. There is a court TV reporter, Catherine Cryer. She did a special interview with Kelly Rundle, who did the documentary. And then the town, uh, Villisca's historian, Dr. Edgar Epperly. And in 2017, there was a fictional movie on Netflix called The Axe Murders of Villisca. Hmm. I need to watch that. Yeah. There are also many fictional and true crime stories written about this crime, none of which I have read, but I'm sure they are all very, very good. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many. Like, I, I, I Googled it and I was like, wow, that's a lot of books. I read a I read a book, The Man on the Train, mm-hmm. uh, that was talking more about the serial killer that was like riding the rails, but mm-hmm. maybe he was a part of Alaska. It was very interesting. Terrible writer. I don't Uh-oh. know if I recommend the book or not. I did learn things. I don't know. I'll put it on the website. I'll give it a, <laughs> a C minus. Okay. <laughs> it's informative. I was just like the 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 writing made me just I couldn't get into it. We need to come yeah. up with our own rating system, like how there's like. Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb for shows and movies, but like... I'll give this one axe. (laughs) (laughs) This is a Libra of a book. Oh. Okay. Shit. Okay. But Libras are good at communicating. (laughs) That's what they annoy me. Okay. (laughs) So maybe if you're a Libra, you'll enjoy this style of writing. Although I just figured out today, my dad is a Libra. (laughs) Hi, dad. You're not listening. Anywho. I think it'd just be if it was just a random guy from a train that he came at just the right time to like kill his entire family. There was already a feud set up. Mm -hmm. Sketchy minister was there. Like it was all ready to happen. And then everyone else got blamed. And this guy was like, bye. Peace. I'm going to hop the next train. I got other people to murder. (laughs) Hobo life. Yay. Hashtag. (laughs) Yet another reason to not live next to the train tracks. Right? Oh, I live really close to train tracks. Uh-oh. Not that close. Ah, there are also a couple homeless people that live there. Intense. Um, okay. 
This is where the crime story will end for me. Like I said, there's a ton of rabbit holes you can go down. There's so many theories about this case because it remains unsolved, but I wanted to venture off into the creepy paranormal part of this. Yay. I'm not going to lie. Paranormal stuff gives me the absolute heebie-jeebies. While I do enjoy hearing a story from time to time and maybe even feeling some chills, researching paranormal shit is not my jam. It just isn't. I was so creeped out. This might be the last paranormal story you do. (laughs) Well, I say that about a lot of different types of stories and then I do them anyway. That's true. Yeah, and don't do it after, you know, it's dark. Definitely don't be watching these YouTube videos uh, after dark because it's just so creepy. And then, like, you hear stuff in your house and you're like, what the fuck was that? Yeah, I if I'm ever watching a scary movie or anything spooky like that, it has to be daylight. And then I have to watch something cheerful to, like, bleach my brain after the fact so I forget all about the scary stuff. And even still, mm-hmm. sometimes I'm, like, unable to fall asleep at night because of all the shadows around. Yeah. And I don't watch scary movies, surprisingly <laughs> enough. Although I fucking love like the paranormal. Like scary things. I do. I love the paranormal. Again, not my favorite, but this is what I have found for you. So the Villisca Axe Murder House is located at 508 East 2nd Street in Villisca, Iowa. The house was built in 1868 on Lot 310. After the murders, the house went through the possession of eight people, the most recent occurring in 1994. It was purchased by Darwin and Martha Lynn. They restored the house to its original condition at the time of the murders, so they took out electricity, they took out plumbing, they removed the garage, and they brought back the outhouse, the chicken coop, and the barn. Okay. For it to be like a venue for for fun, for people to see what it's like to live back then? Um, no. Because they actually <laughs> wanted to live like they were back then? No, it is a tourist destination, but not for those reasons. They did furnish the and decorate the inside of the house with items from the 1912 era, or at least to the best of their ability. And in 1997, the house was added to the National Register of Historic Places and received the Preservation at its Best Award from the Iowa Historic Preservation Alliance. So, if you dare, the Villisca Axe Murder House is open for tours... Tuesday through Sunday from 1 to 4 for $10 a person. If you are braver and looking for that paranormal adventure, you can book an overnight stay for $428. Oh my god, an overnight stay! Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, let's pick this Airbnb. Hmm. <laughs> it has no electricity. It doesn't have a fucking toilet. I can't park One my star. car. It's $430. The bed's probably One made out of straw. Like, come on. <laughs> I will just say that this would be a super, super hard pass for me. But for paranormal enthusiasts and paranormal professionals, it has been a very, very popular destination. I wonder how booked it is. I don't know. I, with COVID, I don't know. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Ghosts can't get COVID. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I would do like a night tour. I don't think I'd want to. I wouldn't pay that much to spend the night there. And like not get sleep. Yeah. I know. So that's, yeah. They only offer the daytime tours. The nights are reserved for the overnight guests. 
right. But for $428, that's up to six people. Okay. So it's not per person. Bring your whole crew. But again, like you said, there's no toilet. There's no electricity. Are there any axes? There might be. I don't know. You get a bacon (laughs) breakfast the next day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm paying you $400 plus. I think breakfast should be included. I don't think it is like a bed and breakfast. It's barely a bed. Check out 6 a.m. Like how they used to get up super early. It's actually nine. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, you need to vacate Still by nine. Still early for me. That's, yeah, but, that's yeah. quite early. Especially if you've been up all night doing paranormal stuff, but... I guess you might be wanting to get the fuck out. True. The Velisca Axe Murder House has been on most of the popular ghost hunting paranormal type shows. Guests have experienced disembodied footsteps, things moving, voices, apparitions, shadows, and general bad vibes. Bad vibes indeed. Hmm. So I'm just going to talk about a couple of shows from my research. Again, do not research go shit after dark. Just just <laughs> don't do it. So there is Kindred Spirits Inside the Investigation on the Travel Channel from Season 3, Episode 9. Paranormal investigators Amy Bruni and Adam Berry were contacted by a man named John Worley who had visited the house and he had gotten an EVP reading. An EVP is an electronic voice phenomenon. So basically they're recording, you play it back and you listen and then you hear stuff or you don't hear stuff. Sometimes words, sometimes nothing. Sometimes you make it up, but it's still fun. Sometimes it doesn't actually sound like what I know, right? it sounds like. like. It's like, okay, nice nice try. Imagination. Sometimes it does, too. And again, if you listen to some of these things, some of them are really fucked up. But John Morley had contacted them because his EVP said, quote, kill John Worley, ah! end quote. <laughs> oh, my God. He probably got out before the 9 a.m. exit. Mm-hmm. Is that recording available? Can we include it? Um, I think it's a part of the show. We can link the, maybe link okay. the show. That's really cool. So John told Amy and Adam that afterwards, several of his friends and family members got ill or died, and he was concerned that it was his fault. Oh. These investigators decided that they were going to set out to visit the house for themselves. So they go in, and Adam asked, quote, did you do something to this family? End quote. The EVP recording had a response of, I killed them. That is something. That one, it kind of sounded like that, but yeah. And then when Amy said, praying on people who come in here is going to stop. We are on to your little trick. The EVP recording had a response of, fuck off. <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> you, who are you to tell me what to do? Yeah, I'm, I'm dead. in this place. You can't do anything to me. Try again. And that one actually did sound like that one. So Paranormal Research and Investigative Studies of the Midwest, or PRISM. Ah, oh, that's the uh, data um, analysis program that I use. Yes. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a good one. statistics built in. Yeah. Okay. 
so the PRISM and ORBS research team has done multiple investigations at this house from 2004 to 2013. And this is this is the one with the super, super, super creepy EVPs. So the most notable of the EVPs, and I'm just going to run through them. Some of the more notable ones were, get in here. Oh. He's going to hurt Paul. Was there a Paul? Paul was one of the children. Oh, okay. Can you close the door? Do it again, Lena. (gasps) Ew. Who are you? And then Paul. And then a very, very seriously creepy ass giggle. Ew. Ew. I need to watch this. Yeah. Giggling. Ghost giggling is like definitely on the creepy scale for me. And it's the, it's the children. I don't like Which is, makes it even creepier, I think. Do it again, Lena. Yeah. I don't, I hate it. That one sounds really bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she was the only one that might have been awake too. Yeah. Mm -mm. So visitors to the house have reported emotional, physical, and supernatural disturbances during their overnight stays. Some of the guests have experienced hearing children's laughter. Creepy. Doors opening and closing, sometimes upon request. Oh. Yeah. Cold air gusts. Being held down. Ah! Uh -uh. Scratches. No, no. No, no. How? Growls. Growls. Orbs of light. White light. Children's toy balls rolling to your feet or stop rolling when sighted. Oh! Oh! It's like just rolling around. Stop! Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like the the Toy Story. Like, they just like, play dead. (laughs) Yeah. But not in a cute way. This is a creepy creepy. way. Although, it is kind of creepy to think that your toys actually are alive the whole time and are watching you. Oh my god! Oh, okay, we're talking about creepy things right now. I just saw something out of the corner of my eye because I'm facing this window in my office. And there was a cat on the fence, but all I could see in the dark were its yellow eyes <laughs> staring in my window. It's a demon. <laughs> my oh hands my are God. so clammy right now. Because I like I I took a second for my eyes to adjust. I just stared up and it's like two yellow eyes staring into my window. <laughs> and I saw the like the little collar like shimmering in the light. And I was like, oh, it's just the neighbor cat. <laughs> And I saw it's you just like so completely like paralyze yourself for a minute for a second. You saw my like the you just like from my face. And then you didn't do any you didn't move at all. <laughs> <sighs> okay, I'm okay. Wow. Guests have also experienced uh heaviness in the air, and I am sure that there are plenty more, but that was about all that I could stomach for this list of really super creepy shit. However, another article from 2014 caught my attention. On November 7th of 2014, Robert Stephen Larson Jr., along with his mother and stepfather, and I've also heard along with two friends, but most of the information said mother and stepfather. Maybe they are his friends. Oh, that's true. Maybe. (laughs) They stayed overnight at the house for a recreational paranormal investigation. According to Montgomery County Sheriff Joe Sampson, quote, from my understanding, he was alone in the Northwest bedroom and the rest of the party was outside. He called for help on their mobile two-way radios, end quote. Robert was found stabbed in the chest. No. 
from an apparently self-inflicted wound at 12.45 a.m., which was the estimated time of the 1912 (gasps) murders. Oh, shit. Why did he bring a knife? I don't know. Robert did recover from his injury. Oh. Okay, good. But has never spoken publicly about the events of that night. Hmm. I'm really not sure what to think about that, but it was an interesting article. Uh, Yeah. Fascinating. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe they weren't his friends. I know, right? (laughs) So, listeners, do you believe in ghosts? Let us know. Would you visit or stay the night at the Velisca Axe Murder House? I would not. I would visit. I would not spend the night. I would not spend the night. I would definitely not spend the fucking night. (laughs) Definitely, especially after that last story about getting stabbed. And how scared I was of a literally of a, of a cat. cat just now in the dark. <laughs> like in your nice, comfortable house. <laughs> I was like, there's something looking at me. Uh. So for astrology, I don't have much, right? Because this is a historical case and paranormal stuff. But on 6-9 of 1912, the moon was a waning crescent. And a waning crescent moon is known to be a sign of fertility It is related to life and death and is a popular symbol in many religions. It also points to the changing of the season and the ebb and flow of the tides, and it may also impact the feminine menstrual cycle. So the waning crescent moon. All right. All right. And this episode will air on Monday 9-6. And besides the TCT trine, I've got two more trines for you on... September 6th, Mars and Virgo will be trying with Pluto and Capricorn. Oh, good old Earth lovers. Uh-huh. This combination could make us feel very powerful and, you know, motivate us to conquer the world. So ambition and dedication kind of gets a boost. And then also, Venus and Libra will be trying with Jupiter and Aquarius. And this will be a good day for romantic relationships, for socializing, Ooh. Or just for having a good time. All right. And that is what I have for you this week. Wow, this is great. Because I think before you actually joined the call, Sarah and I were talking about spooky season. And I was talking about doing something paranormal as well. I I just said that out loud. I haven't thought about anything. But yes, you can do the research. (laughs) I want to find something zombie related. Mm, And vampire related. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Werewolves okay. are my favorite, I have though. the vampire... Was it the vampire of... Oh, Sacramento Dusseldorf? or Dusseldorf. There's a lot of vampires. It's fucking dark. Like, I can't... There's a lot of animal abuse. Mm. And no. And I just... I don't want to do that. Yeah. I do, however, have more astrology to add on. Awesome. So continuing this astrology corner... Are we calling them corners? I think so. All right. What happened? Morris... Morris intruded again, and then I was trying to fix my mic, and I hit myself in the head with my pop filter. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, boy. All sorts of mishaps are happening. (sighs) Well, also when this airs on September 6th, Mercury is entering its pre-retrograde shadow. Okay. And it's going to further enter full retrograde later in the month on September 27th. But what the pre-retrograde shadow means is that this is when the planet is kind of traversing the degrees that it's later going to return to during the, the actual retrograde. So when it appears um, directionally going backwards, even though it d- like technically doesn't in orbit. 
But what this means is that decisions and plans that you make in the pre-retrograde shadow time might come up for review later during the retrograde. So be aware of things that you're planning from now when this airs through September 27th. And then um, if those things are occurring between the 27th and October 18th, those might be some really big decisions that you might want to reconsider or put a little extra thought into because that's during that retrograde part. So maybe no travel, maybe no big financial decisions, things like that. Just be aware of that coming up. Okay. Also on September 6th is a new moon. So we're going <gasps> to not not hyperventilate about the retrograde stuff happening again. <laughs> but <laughs> um, new moons signify new beginnings, right? So another new powerful time. This is a great time to formulate some new goals for the month and maybe even for the rest of the year, aside from like our retrograde time. Thanks to that studious and organized Virgo energy because our new moon <laughs> is in Virgo. Yay! So since it's a time of new beginnings and this new moon presents an, op- uh, an opportunity for us to make these new goals... During the all things Virgo time, um, it's going to be a really great time to concentrate on some new ways to get your kind of day-to-day life more organized, to reach your um, your goals financially or in the workplace or even things that you've been putting off all year and you're like, you know what, before this year is over, I really need to make this happen. So just do it. We need that earthiness. So Yeah, and the strong communication to kind of balance out the retrograde. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With the new moon in Virgo, before this year is over, we would love to hear from you. <laughs> Sooner the better. Yeah, not please not all on December 31st. <laughs> exactly. Hannah has other things she's got worried about that time. I do? 30th, whatever. Ah, yes. <laughs> we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Twitter at True Trine, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, on Facebook at TCT Podcast. As I said before, you can email us directly at truecrimetrine at gmail.com and check out our website. It's amazing. www.truecrimetrine.com. It's amazing. (laughs) And I said I would try to find a new quote. So I'm going to give you guys an option. Whose thoughts would you like to hear on astrology? I have Ralph Waldo Emerson. I also haven't read anything of his, but he is an author. I have Arthur C. Clarke, also a fiction author, who wrote the screenplay for 2001, A Space Odyssey. All right. Or Aleister Crowley, the wickedest man in the world. Oh. At least to the early people living in the early 1900s. Are we choosing this or are we listen- leaving this to listeners to choose? Oh, we can have listeners choose, actually. If they don't say anything, you have to choose next time. All right. Okay. All right. Well, look it up, guys. Aleister Crowley is like a very influential Satanist. Okay. That gets my vote. <laughs> I know, but he's kind of an asshole. Oh. But he's kind of not an asshole. How about we do his quote for this week, and then if the listeners want to keep him, they can. If not, they can vote for Ralph or Arthur. Ralph. Ralph. All right, well, Ralph. Aleister Crowley, who was... Just an occultist, a magician. He liked to fuck a lot. He founded his own religion. His uh, The foundation of his religion is basically do what thou will. Okay. And then period. Do as thou will is the whole of the law. Which is a little me Because it basically says you could do um whatever the fuck you want. He was very into sex magic. I might put this basic techniques of sex magic on the, ex- on the um, website. Ooh. Okay. 
But so that's Aleister Crowley. He was a big deal in the early 1900s occult There's something lifestyle. to be said about man- manifesting during orgasm. Oh, and he loved manifesting during orgasm. Like, that was a big thing for Aleister Crowley. Some more witchy bullshit. Ah, uh, it's, it's <laughs> great, but uh, it's great. So what he has to say is, Astrology has no more useful function than this, to discover the inmost nature of a man and to bring it out into his consciousness that he may fulfill it according to the law of light. He's into astrology. He wrote a whole book about it. Okay. Fair enough. Sweet. Maybe someday I'll talk about Aleister Crowley. He's bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> that might be fun. It might be long. <laughs> Is the real thing here. Anywho, that's what I got. Listeners, do you like Crowley? Would you rather hear from Arthur or Ralph? Ralph. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.